0: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Yeah. If you're, if you're new here, I'm from Cleveland, and I belong to your Browns Only uh, Facebook page, and they are not happy, I can just say, okay? They're like, I am never rooting for the Bengals, but I want you to know, I'm Christ-like. I care about my flock, so who day, all right? So good luck today. Hope you win. I have a shirt my wife gave me years ago, it's a brown shirt, and it says, just once before I die, ain't gonna happen, that's all there is to it. So I've accepted that, I'm happy for you, Um, leave me alone after the game. (laughs) (laughs) So we're in week two, make a good decision to make the decision good. And uh, in that, uh, we talked about the fact that decisions really are part of life. They define it. We make decisions all the time. You made a decision what to wear today, whether to eat breakfast, what service to come to or to watch online, uh, have a cup of coffee on your way in or not. And most decisions are inconsequential, uh, whether they go well or not. Not a big deal. Some are very significant, uh, to the point where decisions can define us. We can be known for our decisions, good or bad, uh, regrettable or enjoyable. And there's a process. This is all we talked about last week. And this process, including the fact you have to understand or identify the why. Why are you doing this? Uh, identify the, the, the need that's being met as a result of that as you cast vision to yourself or other people. And then define the what. What are the steps to fulfill that, to accomplish that decision? And anticipate how much it's going to cost uh, so that you understand the opportunity costs, financial costs, energy, resources, Whatever. And many people make a good decision that doesn't turn out, and they're, like, disappointed. I thought it was going to be so great. And I've learned the hard way that making a good decision is just part of the job. The next part is making that decision good. We use the ministry center as an example, 35,000 square feet, We attempted it in 1992. It did not work. We failed miserably. Uh, A few years later, we attempted it again, and that good decision we made, good. it was an uphill climb the whole 18 months of that that construction process. You can go back and watch that last weekend. And so during that time, we made a good decision. We made mistakes. We learned and we persevered. And in your life, it'll be no different. You will make good decisions. Uh, You will at times make mistakes. Prayerfully, you will learn from that and then persevere and make the decision good. So we're going to kind of break that down into different kinds of decisions. And this weekend, I want to talk about making a good spiritual decision and then making that decision good. But before we dive into that area, I want to talk a little bit more about making decisions. And I want to talk about uh, an important aspect, and that is input to your decisions. And there is both helpful input and harmful, depending on who you get it from and what you do with it. Let's uh, talk about this, and I, I kind of coined the phrase, the feedback is my friend. I like to uh, get input on decisions really all across this spectrum, and I process it differently depending on where it's coming from. Uh, but one of the themes in my life is, if your pain can be my gain, I'm all about that. And If your success can leverage my success, I want to learn from that. Uh, Why go through things, good, bad, or otherwise, if I can learn from you and then short cut the process? Likewise, I've learned that if my pain can be your gain, I'm all about that, and my success can add to yours. I love doing that as well. And so I learned that early on when I was in high school. My dad gave me my first car. It was our our family car, and it was uh, worth about 300 bucks. It wasn't much back in those days. Uh, It had big rust holes behind the back wheels. That's what Salt did to old cars back in Cleveland in the day. And I started asking my friends about doing how do you do body work? getting input. And uh, they told me how to do it, and I took a shot at it and kind of made a mess of it initially, but eventually I got good at doing that. Uh, fast forward, I remember when we bought the home we live in now 18 years ago. Uh, it was the first home we had with a basement as a married couple. And so we had an unfinished basement. I wanted to finish the basement. So I asked Mike Braswell, who used to run our facilities here, really skilled at uh, home handyman, home building kind of things. I took him down to the basement at a legal pad. And I said, Mike, I want you to stand here and just out loud, tell me everything you see from start to finish. What do I need to do to finish this basement? And I literally had about two or three pages of legal pad uh, notes, just one after the other, step, 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 step to finish it. Uh, fast forward, we had a Christmas uh, party in, in December, had the staff over. And I said, Chris, hey, come to the bathroom with me, which is kind of a unique invitation. Um, <laughs> I said, listen, I'm going to be, we're redoing we this, and I want to I paint the cabinets, and he was a painter by trade before he came on staff. He did the cabinets down in the, connection to the ministry center. Awesome job. What do I do? So on my phone, I have notes of what paint and what kind of rolls and what kind of brush and the whole process to do because when I get helpful input, it helps me make a good decision, make the decision good. That applies in spiritual work as well. I remember when we were going to build this building. Uh, I loaded up a team of our lead staff members, and we got into a van and drove to Springfield, Missouri to spend a day with John Lindell and his team at James River Assembly. Phenomenal leader, loads of experience in raising funds and building buildings, and we gained so much from spending the time with him. And so when I sit with a couple who are engaged, I will ask them, well, what do your family and friends think about them? And what I look forward to is, oh, my family loves them. My friends think they're great. Now, I'm a little apprehensive when they go, oh, my family can't stand them. Or my friends wonder what I'm doing. Uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, but it means you should pay attention because they're giving you some feedback that could be helpful. Biblically, we see the importance of that. And I'm going to read a couple of verses that aren't on the screen. So if you have a Bible or Bible device, turn to the book of Proverbs uh, near the middle of your Bible. And Proverbs chapter 11 Verse 14 says, where there is no guidance, the people fall. But in abundance of counselors, there's victory. Skip a few chapters to the right to Proverbs chapter 15, verse 22. Without consultation, plans are frustrated, but with many counselors, they succeed. And so, depending on the magnitude of your decision, you probably don't need to consult with people. Should I put cream in my coffee? Um, But should I take the job? That might merit some input. And so, when you're making major decisions, decisions that it's going to matter to you if it doesn't turn out, all right? then learn to get counsel uh, from those who can speak to you. And like I said, you can learn from people's successes. You can also learn from people's failures as long as you discern uh, sort of what the template is that you're learning from them. But then there's, there's also um, un- unhelpful or harmful feedback that you're going to get with major decisions. And even harmful decision as far as the intent uh, can be beneficial if you interpret it and use it right. Let's look at an example of harmful feedback that wasn't handled correctly, and it had a disastrous result. Notice that. So when you are getting feedback from this end of the continuum, you've got to handle it correctly, all right? So the setting is the people of Israel uh, had been in slavery in Egypt for four centuries. God delivered them from that slavery through the leadership of Moses, and uh, He was taking them to the promised land. And so as he was leading them to the promised land, uh, this had been promised to them centuries before through their forefather, Abraham. God made a promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you, make you a great nation. I'm going to give you land as far as you can see, north, south, east, and west. And through your descendants, Jesus, all the world will be blessed. So this land was promised to them. And they are finally delivered from slavery. And they get to the promised land. They wander through the wilderness for a matter of months. They get to, the K- to Kadesh Barnea, uh, a sort of a, a primitive campground. And there's like a million people in this caravan. And so God tells them in Numbers chapter 13, if you have your Bible, verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send out for yourself men so that they may spy out the land of Canaan, that's the promised land, that I am going, that I am going to give you to the sons of Israel. You shall send a man from each of their father's tribes, every one a leader among them. So pick some sharp leaders, Moses, one from each tribe. There are 12 tribes. I want you to send them into the land that I am going to give you to check it out, because I want you to not only know, here is the why, you're getting the promised land, but the what. What are you going to need to do to accomplish this, to make this possession successful? And so in verse 17, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan. Listen for what Moses doesn't tell them, all right? He said to them, go up there into the Negev, that's the low land, go up into the hill country and see what the land is like, whether the people who live in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many, and how is the land in which they live? Is it good or bad? And how are the cities in which they live? Are they like open camps or or fortifications? And how is the land? Is it fat or lean? Are there trees in it or not? Make an effort then to get some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the time of the first ripe grapes. What did Moses not say? He didn't say, see if we should take the land. That's a done deal. That's already made. That decision was concluded. God said, this is the promised land. So there is no if to this. There is no, okay, guys, I want you to go there and I want you to spy out the land and see if we can take it or not. There was no if. There was a go, this is the land, let's just figure it out and know what we're getting ourselves into. We're going to make the decision good. Well, if you read the rest of the story, uh, starting around verse 26 or 27, the 12 men come back. And they unanimously agree, it's amazing. We have some of its fruit, and it's an incredible land. It's very fruitful. It's bountiful. It's it's beautiful. And they say, but, 10 of the 12 say, but, there are Canaanites and Perizzites and Jebusites and Hittites in the land. And and there are fortified cities, and there are giants in the land. And we are like grasshoppers in their sight. And there is no way we can possibly take this. We're going to die in the wilderness. That's where they went to. In fact, they go so far as to say, Moses, you shouldn't have taken us out of Egypt. Let's get another leader and take us back to Egypt, take us back to our slavery, because we can't take it. Joshua and Caleb, two of the 12 spies, say, whoa, time out. We should by all means take this land. There was no if to this. God said, go spy it out so you know what you're getting into. God says, I've made this decision. Now make the decision good. Go take it. And by the way, when he promised them the promised land, years before that, he said, I'm going to lead you into the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Jebusite, the Perizzite, and you're going to take their land. It was promised to them. And the way that they were going to take their land, elsewhere in Scripture, the Bible says that God was going to give it to them little by little. Say little by little. God made a great decision for them. This is your land. And now you're going to make the decision good little by little. Do you know how a person is married? We had Norman Ernstine Mitchell married 66 years We're in the service, last, last service. And I, and I asked him, how many years. 60? You know how you get married 66 years? Little by little. You know how you have a career the last 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years? Little by little. You know how you succeed in an academic program or an apprenticeship? Little by little. You know how you be a good parent and become a good grandparent? Little by little. You know how you become successful and fruitful in your spiritual life and your walk with God and make a difference in people's lives? Little by little. Say little by little. Take your neighbor and tell them little by little, because they need to remind right of that. That's how we make decisions good. And so if you have the app, you can follow along with us because what you had here in numbers is be careful. Before I move on, be careful that you don't give undue attention to the input of pessimists and hopeless people. I listen to my critics because there's usually some truth in it. I listen to their apprehensions and their reservations. Uh, when, uh, when we went to Africa in 2007, seven of us came back. We were stoked. We were on Fire. And after I kind of first told the church staff that week, said, yeah, people are asking, well, what are we doing over in Africa when there's problems here? And I I remember I said, somebody at Christian Life Center said that? I need to know what my critics are saying. And I was able to say, okay, God called us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the uttermost part. So it's where you live, it's church multiplication, it's it's cross-cultural and it's international. It's not either or, it's all the above. And boy, when we first came back, I got severe pushback at a, at a top leadership level. I'm not sure about that. I remember it caught me by surprise. Paul Carson and I both were like, man, what are we going to do if CLC doesn't jump onto this? Because we feel like God's called us to this. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? And so the pushback is helpful. But, and there are times that there is a healthy sense of now I've asked for advice, I've got input, and it wasn't necessarily from pessimists, and I realized, whoa, that's not the right decision. But be careful that you don't listen to people like the 10 spies because they cheated Israel of their future, and God said, fine, if you want to die in the wilderness, then you're going to take a detour for 40 years and go nowhere and die in the wilderness. The next generation gets their shot. So listen to both ends of the continuum, but learn how to filter that feedback so that you can learn to make the decision good. So let's look at making the decision good when it comes to uh, the most important decision. Your spiritual decision is greater than any other, and there is no turning back. We just sang about that. I decided to follow Jesus, no turning back. And uh, in Matthew 16, verse 26, talk about the greatest decision. For what will a profit a man, Jesus said this, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will the man give in exchange for his soul? If you have not decided to follow Jesus, friend, you are not following Jesus. And if you don't follow Jesus in this life, you can't expect all of a sudden when you die to follow Jesus. No, that decision has already been set. And if you live without Christ in this life, you'll live without him in the next and you will be damned. Plain and simple. I owe that truth to you, that you need to know that ahead of time. And making the decision in Luke chapter 9, verse 62, Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow, looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Like those Israelites, we want to go back to Egypt. What? Get out of here. Now that's an ancient agricultural analogy. In the old days, you had a plow, it was one blade, you held it with the handles, an ox or something pulled it, and so you walked like this, and your job as the plow steerer was to keep the rows straight so you could plant seeds and that, and that's about as agricultural as I am aware, so I'm not an agriculture guy. So Jesus said, if, you're, if you put your hand on the plow and you look back, you're not fit because you're not going to get what you need. So it's kind of like the parallel now is when I drive, my wife says, keep your eyes on the road because when I talk to her, I go that way. <laughs> Don't be turning back. When you decide to follow Jesus, decide to follow Jesus. Yeah, but it's hard. And sadly, there are people who do what I do for a living that sell people a bill of goods to make you think that when you accept Jesus, it means you're going to be wealthier, healthier, happier, and have more fun and be more popular. That ain't true. I know people that have nothing to do with Jesus. that have more money than me. They seem to be more popular. They have a whole lot of fun. And that their, their life is this woohoo. I'm serving Jesus and following Him because I realize that I have sinned and I fall short of the glory of God. And I realize there is a chasm between me and God, as the prophet Isaiah said, and I cannot get to heaven from here because I might be a good guy or try to be a good guy, but heaven's not a good place. It's a perfect place, and I don't want to be damned for eternity, and I need someone in my life now to make up the difference through His amazing grace, and that's Jesus. That's why I serve Him. Anything else He adds to that is icing on the cake. Your spiritual decision is more significant than who you will marry or whether you'll stay single. Your decision to follow Christ is more important than your, what career you'll be in, what job you'll take, what part of town you'll live in, the financial lifestyle you will live, and on and on and on. Your decision to follow Christ is the most important, and it is meant to be irrevocable. Once you decide to follow Jesus, you do not look back. And it's not a one-and-done decision. You need to maximize your spiritual potential. I apologize to you if I've ever given you the impression that all you have to do to be a Christian is be in a service and raise your hand or pray this prayer, repeat after me, ask Christ to forgive you of your sins and be my Lord and Savior and you're done. Would you say that's just the beginning? If you haven't prayed that prayer yet, when we take communion, you'll have an opportunity to pray that prayer and ask him to be your Savior today. But that's the start. Many people act like accepting Jesus is just checking off a box. I make the decision and I'm done with that. No, that is the beginning. And one of our 10 core values as a church, you can read them on our website, is maximizing our potential. Let me read it for you. We believe God equips each of us, say that means me, with talents, abilities, and resources. How many Christians are here? Raise your hand. Okay, how many of you have spiritual gifts? If you just raise your hand, raise it again. Every Christian, the Bible says, to each one is given a manifestation of the Spirit, a spiritual gift for the common good. Every person here has some kind of spiritual gifts, usually one, two, or three. Uh, the most common is the gift of helps. I love to help. I love to be part of something larger. And, and maybe it's the gift of administration. In a few weeks, we have hands against hunger coming, and there are people who are, are serving with the gift of administration. They, can orga- they will organize 1,700 people to pack hundreds of thousands of meals and tons of food put into those bags and ship it out in containers. They will do that flawlessly using their gifts that they were given, the gift of administration. I remember when it dawned on me. I think I have the gift of teaching, all right. And the gift of, it's for the common good. It doesn't do me a whole lot of good. The study time does, but but teaching, whether it's serving, hospitality, leadership, whatever it is, those gifts are given to us for the common good, and we are to serve one another. And so, when it comes to maximizing our potential, to fully develop and use these gifts. Thereby maximizing our potential and living a successful, wealthy, productive life. Now, <laughs> I said that last service, I felt guilty because the way I said it, and I said, live a productive, successful life. And some guys started cheering. And I go, ooh, sorry, I set you up. <laughs> so I wasn't quite as convincing there on purpose. No, he gives all that to you so that you can serve him and our community. That's why you have all that. And in 2 Peter chapter 3, let me, let me go there. I'll, I'll jump to the serving part in a moment. But 2 Peter 3, verse 17, he says, You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you're not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from their own steadfastness. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Say, Grow. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When are you done growing? Say, when I die. And then you really keep growing. You just change, change modes and be in heaven. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. It is not, I pray a prayer and I'm done. No, you pray a prayer and that begins a journey, a lifetime of discovery of who this amazing God is who saved you. And then 2 Corinthians 5, I want you to be ready for this event because it's going to happen in your life. Each one of us will experience this event and I want you to be ready and walk away from it. I want you to find me in heaven and give me a hug or a high five and say, I am so glad you did this to me. That's a warning of what's coming, all right? Because I was ready for it. Therefore, we also have as our ambition, our ambition, I am driven to this. Whether at home or absent, whether I'm at home, meaning I'm, I'm on planet Earth or I'm absent from the body and present with the Lord, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all, say all. all. That means you. All appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one, you're not going to be there with your husband, your wife, your parents, your, your friends, your wife, you're, you're going to be, you're going to be, Each one may be recompensed for their deeds in the body, whether good or according to what he's done, whether good or bad. You're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ as a Christian. You're not going to be judged for your sins. Those are forgiven and gone. But as I said it before, Jesus is going to say something like this to you. I left heaven, took on the form of a man, and came to earth and was born in a barn. Once you're in heaven, that's going to really blow your mind of what he did. He's going to say, I lived on the earth I did not receive the honor and glory that was due me. People mistreated me, but I showed the power and the love of God. And then at the end of my life, they falsely accused me and they, they wrongly tried me and condemned me. And then they tortured me to death, but I died on the cross and hung there and shed my blood for you because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And stand, you or your name, you needed to be forgiven of your sins. I want to make it possible for you to be forgiven if you would ask me. And then they took me off that cross when I was dead and they buried me in a tomb and I was in that tomb for three days. But then I rose from the grave and I conquered death and I ascended back into heaven. But I didn't leave you alone. When I left, I told you as I did. I gave you the Holy Spirit, my spirit to dwell in you. And as such, I gave you my spirit that he would cultivate the fruit of the spirit, my personality traits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, those things to cultivate in you so you would be transforming through your life. And then I gave you gifts of the spirit to empower you to carry on my work after I left the planet because I didn't finish it. And then he's going to say, he's going to call your name, look you right in the eye and say,
1: What'd you do with it?
0: Hopefully, the following moments will be moments of celebration and joy. And you realize it was so worth it. And you will end that with Him saying to you, call you by name, look you in the eye with a smile on His face and say, well done, good and faithful servant. For some, it'll be like 1 Corinthians chapter 3 where it'll all be burned away, but you'll get into heaven by the skin of your teeth. Be a person who lives a rewardable life that when you stand before Christ, there's a smile on his face and say, well done for maximizing your potential that I gave you. I didn't finish my mission, but I handed it off to you, to the church, and I want to thank you for living it out. Now, if that sounds a little too harsh or raising the bar too high, well, let's look at Jesus' words in John chapter 15, verse 1. I'm the true vine, and my Father's the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so it may bear more fruit. Boy, I don't enjoy being pruned, do you? Clip here, clip there. It's painful, but it's pain to grow you. You're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit itself itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you're the branches. says it again. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears a little bit of fruit. What does it say? He bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Here's the scary part. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. You get the message there? If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, it'll be done for you. My Father is glorified by this. And that's the whole purpose Jesus came, to glorify His Father. You want to know why we live? We want to bring glory to the Father. He's glorified by this, that you bear much Fruit. Want to prove that you're a Christian? Bear much fruit, because that is how you prove to be my disciples. It's an uphill climb for you to prove that you're a disciple. I love. I have decided to follow Jesus. Really? Then let's let's celebrate. What fruit is there in your life? Uh, don't don't have a lot. It's been kind of busy. The purpose you or Jesus went to a cross was to save you from hell and have you bear fruit for him. Period. All this other stuff we've turned it into is a distortion of his perspective. How many of you ever had a job, went to school, went to a training program, whatever? Let me see here. Okay. When you got the job, did you get the job and they just started sending you paychecks? You had to show up. Right? You go to school, you you enroll in school, you don't just enroll in school, you get a diploma. You gotta show up. You gotta do the work. You gotta do the training. Again, and again, and again. Well, guess what? When you accept Jesus as Lord and Savior, you don't just check the box, pray the prayer, and all this just, no. That's the beginning, you gotta keep showing up. Every day, little by little, there is a transformation process supposed to be happening in me where, guess what? When I wake up, how many days after day after day, I'm looking a little more like Jesus now than I did back then. And I'm finding more ways, new ways, to bear fruit in and through my life for Him because that's what He called me to, and that's what He expects. So with all due respect, He's not going to just say, Died on the cross for you. If you get not with it, hey, no problem. I don't get that from the Gospel of John. I was tortured to death for you. You got nothing to show for it? Did you really even know me then? I mean, really? And so, because you don't pay me to tell you what you want to hear, I'm going to go to the next point. I ask you a question of inventory because I'd whole lot rather do the inventory now and correct course than just go skipping along my merry, disastrous way. Are all five alive in you? Say all five. five. And you can parse it different ways. I won't read you the scripture that Pastor Shane said about the book of Acts, the church then. But the church in the book of Acts thrived and literally changed the course of history. Are we a history course changing church. And they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to fellowship. They were in each other's houses. Talk about small groups and engaging with each other. They were, they were compassionate and giving and unselfish. And they, they realized that Jesus said, I want you to go into all the world and make disciples. And there were men there. That flame was red hot. Rick Warren identifies five purposes of a church. And I ask you, just do an inventory. Relationship. are you doing life with people really at CLC? Do you know them and they know you? You know what's going on in their life. They know what's going on in your life and you're sharing it together. Discipleship. If I had a dollar for every time I said this, I could probably buy us lunch. And that is if all you do is come into this room and look across the back of people's heads and enjoy whatever happens on the stage and then you leave with a head nod or a smile whatever, you are not getting all you need to become who God wants you to become. This is not discipleship. This is teaching. This is a worship time together. But the real nitty-gritty happens when it's one-on-one or with a small group or in a larger setting like a class environment that you've got to be engaged in discipleship. And that's why I'm so glad that Shane and the team are re-upping that. And so today, if God's stirring you about that, stop at the small group table. I ask every service, yeah, a bunch of people are coming out. Great. Because it's a way to plug in and, and do life with people, and it's meaningful third purpose is serving. How are you serving? And, and don't talk about, it's all great about being a wonderful dad or husband or grandpa or whatever, but Jesus said, if you love people who love you, what is that? Even the unrighteous people do that. It's outside your family. Who, who is talking about the difference you make in their life? Who is talking about how caring and, and unselfish and, and how meaningful you are to them as a person? Evangelism. Who is lost that you're helping open their eyes to Christ or, or bump in this direction? And then worship. Worship is important here, but it's also important in your life. Kind of keep the pilot light on the other six days. So when you're here, it's just. And so before I drill down too much, I want to first of all talk to a crowd, specifically those of you who are online. I am thrilled that you're, we can serve you. And the pandemic forced the church nationwide, worldwide to realize the tool that technology can be. And thankfully, we had upgraded our our tech uh, the year before uh, COVID hit. And we not only have all this technology here in the back room, but there's a separate back room that is just dedicated to mixing the sound and visual for our live stream. So to all of you who are there that we're serving, especially those of you who are, uh, you're there because of physical safety reasons, for health reasons. Uh, Maybe it's difficult for you to get up and around, the mobility issues. We are so glad to serve you there, and thank you for being part of our church in this way. If you're checking us out, because lots of people, when I meet them, how'd you start hearing about CLC? Well, you checked it out online first. That's wonderful. It's kind of like our technological, our digital lobby. We're glad you're with us. If you're traveling, you can't be here, you're out of town, whatever, we're glad to serve that need as well. But let me just say that if the reason you're online is because it's convenient, we never intended to have you leave here to settle for convenience. Convenience does not fit into the vocabulary of what it is to follow Christ. No, the one we follow said, if anyone wishes to follow me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And my concern for those who slip to convenience, what, what, what we're so busy about, well, I have been so busy, just need to relax and jammies and slippers and a cup of coffee, um, We should make this the top of our priority because the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. And so as I say that, I'm trying to be your friend here. You know and I know that you really cannot have relationship on a screen. Not in a meaningful church kind of way. You can't do discipleship very effectively with a screen. You certainly can't serve people. You can send us an emoji or a high five or whatever. And evangelism and worship... On occasional weeks when I'm off, I'll watch the service online, and I appreciate it online, but there is nothing like being in the room. And when COVID hit and we were shut down for a couple of months, I told the team, we're going to do it live. So at 5 o'clock, our whole team was in here, and at 9, we're all in here, and the seats were empty, and we were worshiping and preaching like the place was full. I got to tell you, it's way better when you're all here. There's just something about the body of Christ being together. And so I know that the IP addresses are just dropping like flies right now. I'm not trying to offend you. Um, If you need us, we want to serve you, but don't let that be convenient and that's how you're connected because it's a step toward disconnection. But let me be an equal opportunity offender. (laughs) Thank you for being in the room. Now I can look you in the eye and say, far too many of you made a good decision, but you're not making it good. Because for the most part, the extent of your involvement in the body of Christ called Christian Life Center is the time or two a month you hurry in, grab a cup of coffee, sit down, smile at people, experience a great experience on stage, walk out, go, wasn't that great? Yeah, hey, have a good week. And you leave and that's it. That is not relationship and discipleship and serving and evangelism and worship. Here's the good news. How many of you are still alive? <laughs> Trick question. Okay, just make sure you're with me, okay? Then it's not too late. It's not too late to make changes and a difference so when you stand before Christ, he goes, I'll tell you what, you were kind of sputtering there until that that weekend in February 2022, but man, you heard that sermon, and it's been well done. And uh, in the Bible, it talks about the church. There are all these one another's that we're supposed to do. We're supposed to encourage one another, bear one another's burdens, Speak truth to one another, love one another, forgive one another. All that assumes a relational proximity that we're connected. If I don't know you, i got nothing to forgive in you. You didn't miss. You didn't disappoint me or frustrate me. No forgiveness necessary, fine. Boy, I get to know you and I hit your rough edges, you hit mine. Then there's some forgiving that has to take place. There's some loving that has to take place. If I know you, I can encourage you the one another's. And I believe as as it gets to be a steeper climb in our culture for Christianity, this is going to be more and more valuable and we have to be more and more determined to not forsake the assembling of ourselves together, as it says in the book of Hebrews. Final thought. Don't downsize God. Remember what He's not. I remember about 25 years ago, I preached a sermon called Downsizing God. It's back when it was popular as a way to increase corporate bottom lines. You're downsizing, laying people off and, and whatnot. And I find that many of us make God pretty small. And we distort who God is. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, let's start there. What does God say about himself? What, is what Jesus said about himself? Even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. So here's what God says about Himself. Jesus said, I came to be a servant. And the implication is, if I came to be a servant, read the verses before that, I'm calling you to be a servant. And then one more verse before I put those together. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Listen to, to Paul How awestruck he is with who God is. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. They quote the Old Testament, for who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor, or who is first given to him that might be paid back to him? That God has no IOUs, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. What an incredible God he is. And we have taken this God who literally spoke the universe into existence and created everything from your DNA to the Aurora Borealis and the Rocky Mountains. That God. And we've downsized him, and we treat him like he's there to serve us. And so I asked the team to put together what we view God as. Too many of us treat him like a spiritual ATM machine. And we got our uh, debit card. And I just, oh, God, I need God, please. And we, and we add in Jesus' name, like that's the magic formula. Oh, God, I need this. I need that. Please bless me. Please fix this. Please this. Please that. And we have forgotten that Jesus said, I didn't come to, to be served, but to serve. And yet we act like God, the creator of the universe, exists to serve me and to make me comfortable and answer my every plea. On the contrary, there is meant to be a sense of awe and reverence to the one we serve, a sense of soul-shaking gratitude. When I think back to the proper attitude toward God, it's not like he's some spiritual ATM machine. I think back more to the prophet Isaiah who spoke of Christ's birth seven centuries before it happened. He's a man of God and he had a vision of God's throne room. It's recorded in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. It says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim, that's angelic beings, seraphim stood above Him, each having six wings. With two He covered His face, with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. The foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Stop there for a second. I imagine if you and I had that same experience from our flippant American perspective, oh man, it was so cool. You should have seen I was in God's throne room, man. I mean, it was awesome. I wish you could have seen it. Whoa! I had to hurry up and take a selfie. It's amazing. That was not Isaiah's response. Isaiah real. here's what Isaiah said in the next verse. Then I said, Woe is me. I'm ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I don't even belong here. I live among a people of unclean lips, for so my eyes have seen the king. The Lord of hosts, I'm undone. It wrecked him. It wrecked him because he never lost sight of the majesty and the grandeur and the undeserving nature of God compared to who we are. I've been afforded the privilege of a a glimpse in his presence. What a contrast that is to so many of us who have downsized him to a divine Mr. Fix-It. God help
1: us. I'm caught up in your presence I just want to see So else, nothing else will do, I'm caught up in your presence, I just want to sit here at your feet, I'm caught up in this holy morning. Never wanna leave. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited to
0: close this service with communion. If you'll take the elements to prepare, you can stay seated. If you need elements, your section leader will be glad to get them to you. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord that which was delivered to me, that on the night Christ was betrayed, he took bread. After he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. After supper, likewise, he also took the cup in the same manner, the same thankful manner and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. In that same chapter, Paul says that at a time like this, we should examine ourselves. If you're here and you haven't made a decision to follow Jesus, he says to drink this in unworthy manners, drinking damnation to yourself. So if you haven't followed Christ, I'd encourage you today to decide to do exactly that. To have the sense of hope for eternity. To have a sense of purpose in this life to carry on what Christ left to us and to know that he's with you. So in your own words, during this prayer time, just ask him for forgiveness and surrender your life and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. But for those of us who raised our hands earlier who are believers, it's a time to examine ourselves and Are all five alive in you? And uh, I learned a long time ago, people out there tend to think that a person up here saying this has perfected it. I haven't. And I remember last week or so, I was up in that corner praying in the dark, realizing how easy it is for me to turn God into an ATM machine for all the pressure and things that I feel... I need to do in leading a large congregation. Man, if you think that prayer time doesn't become a to-do list for God, God, there's this, 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 there's this. this. I love blessings like the next one, especially the next person does. It's easy to filter in personal things and whatnot, and we downsize him without even realizing it. He wants to be the most inconvenient priority in your life. He wants everything else to have to measure up, to have to stand in line to find its place because nothing is more important than you. There is nothing you're more passionate about than seeking first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and being the body of Christ that he equipped you and gifted you and saved you to be. He wants to be the most inconvenient thing in your life. Is he? Would you bow with me in prayer? And it's just between you and him. What do you want to tell him? Certainly gratitude. If there's repentance, this is an ask for help, whatever it is, now is the time to, to come to him as we hold the representation of his body and his blood for us. Jesus, thank you for coming to earth, taking on the form of humanity in a manger, only to live and die for our sins and conquer the grave and ascend back into heaven. Thank you that you're preparing a place for us, and someday you'll return. But Lord, I'm sorry for how I've downsized you. We apologize. Forgive us for serving a convenient God. Forgive us for finding time for you. Consume us with a passion for Jesus. Preoccupy us with a hunger for your word. Lord, in the inconvenience when we we want to hold a grudge or write somebody off draw us to the inconvenience of forgiveness. Lord, draw us to the inconvenience of of being unselfish in giving when we'd rather keep to ourself and, and acquire for us. Call us to the inconvenience of serving when we just as much prefer to be served or take care of our own. Call us to be you because you left the rest of your mission to us. So, Lord, as we hold the the bread that represents your body and the cup that represents your blood, help us to be an accurate representation of what it's meant to to be the body of Christ lived out in a community of believers because now more than ever before, our world needs to see Jesus in and among us us and we ask that you accomplish that in your precious name. Let's take the bread and the cup together. Would you thank him for his love? Thank him for equipping you, with spiritual gifts. Thank Him for the resources and abilities and time He's given you and the position He's given you in your life that no one else has. Thank Him for all the people who have added to your life. And now Lord, I pray a blessing over this, your congregation, your people. Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep our eyes on Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. Lord, fade the distractions from our lives. Help us to be people who are called to love one another. Help us to be people who are called to grow together and to serve and to worship you with joy and celebration, but also to reach out to people who are lost. And when they make their way through these doors, that they are loved right into a relationship with you. Let Christian Life Center be that kind of church. And Lord, start that work, renew that work, regenerate that work in each one of us from this day forward. In Jesus' name we pray, and everyone who agreed said, amen. Amen.